Comics Monthly Monday, number eight. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. I find their illogic and foolish emotions a constant irritant. And transfer out, freak! Two! I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubblegum. Cheap, lying, no good, rotten, fork-blushing, low-life, snake-licking, dirt-eating, inbred, overstuffed, ignorant, blood-sucking, dog-kissing, brainless, dickless, hopeless, heartless, fat-ass, bug-eyed, stiff-legged, spotty-lipped, Worm-headed sack of monkeys! Matt, Matt, Matt. Matt, Matt, Matt. And now, together by live simulation via the internet, Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell. Blah, blah, blah! No, blah, blah, blah! Hello, and welcome to another Comics Monthly Monday. It's number eight. The big eight already. We're th- three quarters of the way through this through a whole year of monthly Mondays, and uh, I'm Chris Honeywell, and I'm uh, I'm here with Scott Gardner, my co-freak. Hey, how's it going? Um, good, good. I'm ready to ready to talk some comics. Oh yeah. Ninety minutes or more of hardcore comics galore. Hardcore in your face comics. <laughs> Funny cars. <laughs> Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Yeah, actually, Walking Dead are pretty in-your-face comic books for sure. So have to pay for the whole seat, some... but you only need the edge. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm in just one of them wacky, crazy moods tonight. So this this promises to be an interesting show. Yeah. So um, what's what you got right out of the right out of the gate there, freak? Well, uh, I had my my friend and and faithful listener uh, Mike Cross was over at my house today, and uh, he borrowed um, issues number I think twenty two through somewhere in the late fifties of The Walking Dead. He's been uh, reading through them, awesome. so so now he's actually you know that that part of the show is going to actually make sense for him. Now, Mike, Mike is or is not a, a regular comics reader. He's not really into comics, right? I don't think right? he's really read comic books that much, or if, uh, if, see, if that's, at all. That's awesome right there. That, you know, not, not only converting someone to The Walking Dead, but just to the comic medium in, in general. That's awesome, you know. I, I, th- I think that's really cool. Well, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it's up in the air. I haven't asked him if he's going to be seeking out other comic books or not although i have boxes and boxes of them here well no i just mean you know just just simply getting someone that's not into comics to to actually pick let let me put it this way i've been married for 15 years you know Uh i've got a collection creeping up on sixteen thousand books you know i i've read comics all my life all my married life, my my wife knew when she married me that you know I was a comics freak and all that. Uh-huh. I have to this day to get that woman to lay hands on 
on a comic book. I, I just can't get her to try one. I even bought her a while back uh, at, at some sale. I bought, I think it was like for 50 cents for the complete series. I bought like the first two IDW CSI series that they put out. Now, see, uh, uh, IDW put out, you know, you know, you're reading the Star Trek stuff. They put right. out some sweet comics. So I bought her both of the of the first two miniseries that they put out for CSI because she loves that show. Wouldn't never even crack the cover on them. Wouldn't even look at them. I'm like, man, what have I got to do to get this woman to try a comic book? But what she won't. She She's just she reads, you know, like uh, oh god, you know, like James Patterson and. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, like the, you know, she she's very she's much more literate than I am as far as like, you know, quote unquote real books. You know what I mean? So she's she's very well read and, and into that, but just can't get her to try a comic. You know, she's just I, I hate to use the word comic book snob, but she's a comic book snob in the in the sense that you know they're they're funny books to her. You know, they're 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 Adam West, Bam, Pat, you maybe, know, Bam, maybe Powell, maybe we'll have to. Reach into the dark side, and I'll have to send one of my independent, some of my independent comics her way. Maybe those might be. I think if I liking. could just get her to to crack the cover on something like Walking Dead Volume One or or um, I think Exterminators almost, Volume know, One. I I could tell you, I could see my mom reading The Walking Dead. Oh yeah. And I mean, it's pretty. I think she'd be like, "That was really um, intense and kind of over the top." But I think she would probably get hooked on it. <laughs> I think whoever like starts cracking into the Walking Dead is gonna start cracking out on the Walking Dead because mm-hmm. it, it, you know, it really draws you in, and it's 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 a soap opera, you know, in in a way, you know, it's a it's an ongoing drama. And it's very, you know, you, you care about the characters, so you're naturally just going to follow it. Well, the recent – I won't spoil anything, but you know the, the, the fairly recent episode – or excuse me, not episode, issue, issue of Walking Dead where the fate of a certain character was finally revealed. Right. And how, uh, how I affected I was by that. I mean truly right. affected by it. I recounted to her basically the whole story, you know, and she was like actually interested in it. You know what I mean? More than just the typical, yeah. okay, dear, that's nice that I usually get. I mean, she was actually like interested in, in all that. When the book finally came in the mail, you know, I, I showed her, you know, the, the panels from it and all that. And so, I mean, it was – there was actually some interest there in, in all that. So, I, I don't know. I'm going to keep working the, the, on it. The Maybe writing in The Walking sure. Dead is – firing on all cylinders which is frankly oh, yeah. it's is very rare in comic books you know you have your alan moores and stuff the stuff that's working on subconscious levels and that is working on basic themes and just how people but and and kirkman's got all that going in there so it's got resonance but beyond what the normal comic book does but that's the same for any medium tv movies books anything that you know the majority of stuff is you know trash to okay and then there's the rare masterpieces and you know stuff that that, that's transcendent that transcends time and that's going to make a lasting impression and i think walking dead's one of them the watchman's one of them you know Mm -hmm. um you know there uh, you can name any number of of uh 
comics or certain r- runs or time periods of certain comics or characters or stuff that have, you know, gone beyond just being a comic book. And the, sa- the same with books. But as far as, like, real books, I had a thought about that. And a lot of the stuff that, like, the classic literature, I'll bet you in its time, a lot of that stuff was very popular and sort of considered, like, Stephen King is today, right. you know? Oh, that's the pop stuff, but that's the stuff that survived into this day. So now it's like classic. So it's classy. It's antique. It's old, and so it's <laughs> so it's somehow more. And they were more intelligent than than we are now. And well, if they were so intelligent, where were their cars, motherfucker? Where were your airplanes? All right. Don't give me none of that shit. That Shakespeare was so smart, man. Where was his uh, ca- Where was his treculator? Get me started on Shakespeare. <laughs> he was a fucking drooling, mouth-breathing moron. Oh, I'm not. I'm not saying that. I'm just. I. Oh man, you talk about your overrated. I, what is the deal with Shakespeare? I, you know, I love to watch Jeopardy, but you can't watch an episode of Jeopardy without there being a friggin' opera or Shakespeare category. It drives me absolutely insane. But uh, you said Mike got what issues now? 22? It was like up? 22 up into the... I think I've got the last few issues here. I don't think they made it into my long box yet. So I don't wow. think he got those. You, you so better the, make sure that you get them back, man, because uh, I, I saw recently that that, that, stuff's, that stuff's worth a pretty penny, those early yeah. issues of, of Walking Dead. I wish I'd bought it from number one. I bought the first two trade paperbacks, oh, no and I have it from the first two trade paperbacks on, you know, the the whole set after that. And I think I've got a couple issues that sort of – that are in the second trade paperback. So I've got like – I'm, I'm missing a few in the beginning, but I could have bought that first one. I had it in my hand, and I thought about it. And nah, I've gotten burned on too many zombie comics. Well, the one that we're talking about tonight is actually my first paper issue because I uh, discovered it through you know through the CBR. Some right. somebody or other, I can't remember who it was. Now, some online friend, you know, who I, who I don't know face to face, hooked me on it. You know, through CBRs, was right. like, here you got to read this. It's awesome. So that's how I discovered by the that title. Time, by that time, it was issue was number eight. By that time, it's too late to buy number one without like yeah, no, <laughs> auctioning off one of your kids. Yeah. Well, on that subject, I was uh, I was at a con this past weekend. Met up with a with a good buddy of mine, Earlobe of Agamotto from the forum, Mister uh, Adam. I don't know if he wants me to give out his last name, so I won't give out his last name, but Adam. And uh, it was awesome, man. It was really cool. And uh, I did not see the prices on them. I don't know if they had stickers on them or if they were just too small for me to read. But I know that the first I, – I know at least the first uh, eight issues of Walking Dead were on somebody's – you know, like how – have you ever been to a Comic-Con? Um, been to a convention, I've, been, I've been to science fiction conventions. Well, you where know they, how they, they've how had they like have... a little comic room on the side, you know. Right. So you know they'll have like their issues out in the long boxes and stuff. Yeah. But then most of the dealers will have like like a wall behind them where all like the super pricey books are. You yeah, know, like to the keep really expensive them stuff away from the grubby hands of the masses. Well, yeah, that and you know to kind of display them so they'll catch your eye as you know you're walking by and all of a sudden you spot you know an, an action number two or whatever you know. But I noticed on, uh, on at least one wall there that some guy had, you know, 
like one one through like eight or more of Walking Dead. So if they're up there amongst, you know, early Supermans and, you know, Amazing Spider-Man 300 and stuff like that, then, you know, they've got to be, you know, pretty, pretty up pricey, there. I would imagine. You know, if, if they're up there amongst stuff that was, you know, hundreds and hundreds of dollars, then... I think my collection of them will only get popular if there's some sort of movie or TV show and they start re-releasing them. Except they won't really, because you got the um, trade paperbacks, you know. Or if there's yeah. another, if there's another printing of them, you know what I mean. If there's another printing right. of the trade paperbacks because it's an HBO show or something, or all of a sudden it's a bit, you know, it gets a lot of publicity and it's it's very popular. Then I think like the the, the issues that I have, I think my earliest issue, how many? There's six issues, I think, in each trade. Is that it? Uh, you know, I really don't know. Like I, I don't. I don't own any of them, so I really don't know. I'm trying to. Think I, I had always thought that the first trade ended with, uh, um, what's this, his name, Moore's Tony Moore's artwork. So, what issue would that be? Six. Oh, so you might so, be right. There might be six per trade. I'm not. I'm really not positive though. So I've got from like thirteen up to the present. And I even have the variant cover, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> so you're you're con anyway. We're gonna have plenty of time to talk about Walking Dead later. Oh yeah. Well, I was just it was really it was really awesome. You know, I mean, it, it was just a small. To me, it was huge because I've never been to like enormous cons. I'll get back to that point in a minute. But so to me, it was. Per- pretty big but you know it was considered you know one of those small hotel cons you know that that some of the the cities have around but uh, i really enjoyed it and uh would encourage people to go over and uh you know join in on the discussion we've got going on the forum of basically something that just kind of came up which was you know these small local cons versus like your major major cons because you know granted i've never been to one that I would consider like a major con, you know, with like oodles, you know, like something like, uh, I don't know, like San Diego Comic Con or something like that. But, you know, I'm thinking for, for the reasons I go to cons, which is, you know, to dig through quarter and 50 cent bins and, and really find, you know, the, the great stuff in there and that sort of thing. I don't know that I would really get much out of a major con, you know, because I, I've been told that, uh, you know, a lot of times those kind of things, you know, like MegaCon or whatever, it's more about the meet and greets, you know, with with celebrities and things like that than it is about going and, and getting great deals on back issues and stuff. And I just don't know that I would like that as much, you know. I mean, while while it's great to meet certain comic book people and certain celebrities and all that sort of thing, I don't know. I mean, that that's just not really what I'm there for, you know. So I, I don't know. I, I'm well, but I'm curious to see what other people think on that subject. You let, know, what let, what other fans and and con goers think. Let me put it this way: I've been to a couple well, the like science fiction conventions I've gone to, and I'm planning on going to Dragon Con this year mm-hmm. in in Atlanta. Woo-hoo! So, so uh, I'll see you there. And, uh, <laughs> not if I see you first, motherfucker. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I went to them with a job to do. I always do this, though. I, I need to have a job. So I went there with a video camera and a puppet, and I interviewed people, and I did a little show about it, you know. So I had something to do, because otherwise, I'll tell you, I would have been pretty bored. 
I did, you know there was some there was a small comics area to look through and I I enjoyed that and you know there were vendors selling lots of the, a lot of the vendors were stuff that either was too pricey for me or was like jewelry you know medieval looking jewelry sold by a big fat Klingon looking guy I made it myself out of forged business and you know I don't care about that shit so having <laughs> something to do uh, you know honestly I don't you know I don't need to wear like a um gauntlet on my hand and go to uh you know reenactments of of battles from the shire but not that there's anything wrong with that. I uh, see so you're getting into that geek elitism that I was bitching not about. That but there's no, there's anything I, wrong uh, with that. No, no, you should. But uh, you should have heard this, the conversations that well, Adam and I had about geek elitism. Well, that's the thing <laughs> is when you go to a place like when you go to a place like that, you know, and you have the puppet, they immediately think Triumph the Insult Comic Dog making fun of Star Wars, and I don't want to do that. I don't want to. I don't like to go there. And but that's when I go to. Um, Dragon Con this year. That's I, I mean, basically my focus on it's going to be a hanging out with you and b doing stuff for the podcast, using right. using the con as either a backdrop or as a way to meet meet and greet people and schmooze up our podcast or find people to interview or and we'll meet some people off our list you, you know or off our you know forum. And mm-hmm. just generally, you know, generally it'll just, it's going to be like vacation for me. It'll be fun. But, you know, I'm not, you know, I really don't like, this, like to see like Dave Prowse in person or something like that. I don't really care. I've seen enough celebrities to know that there isn't really anything to see, you know, move along, move on. There's nothing here to see, you know, and, and. And I, when I when I go to a place like a con and you see the person there, you see the the girl in her Xena outfit or something, I end up feeling sorry for him or the the guy who had the oh. the cameo. <laughs> I do, I do. As 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 any kind of actor or actress that I see plugging their thing, where they're like, okay, I'm getting paid a thousand dollars to do this, and. You know, there, there's points where you can tell they're honestly having a good time, and then there's points where you can see people just wearing them down to a... And my friend Jack also described this to, you know, where he'd be at a comic convention and say, Carmine Infantino's there, and there's people there just, you know, here, sign 400 comic books to my nephew who has the same name as me. And, you know, and just like, make sure you sign them nice and clearly, you know. And, mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know, the, you get a lot of that where you have people who are fans because there's a lot of people who, you know, who are, you know, you have people who are like, oh, that's cool, that's so-and-so. And then you have other people who may not have as, you know, firm a grip on reality. And that goes for anything, whether it's comics or music or movie stars or anything. When you have people who are you know, inhabiting the world of the collective dreams of people, which is TV and the movies, some people really, like, give them a hard time or or have boundary issues, you know, because they feel they know them. So I think it would be really hard to work one of those, work a con sometime. So that's, I don't know. That's my. I'm. I'm really looking forward to Dragon Con, but I've seen a lot of Green Caps pictures from it, and it looks like a riot, man. It looks like... 
It, it looks does, like it looks it, like eye candy going on all the time. It does look like a lot of fun, but at the same rate, you know, you know me, I'm not really a believe it or not, I'm not really a person for for crowds. You know, I've right. never been like like you know a, a crowd person. And seeing as how a lot of the crowds is those like Klingon people and you were talking about and stuff like that, those people frankly <laughs> which is really me, which know? is really funny because it, yeah, the name Klingon just sort of yeah the, the <laughs> is is sort of appropriate in many ways. So but we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll see how it goes, I guess. But yeah, I am. I'll I'm tell you what though, but it. at a con that big, I think those people get shrunk out by. Just quote unquote normal people. When I say normal, I'm meaning just generally socialized, you know, who can get along with everybody else and right. and and understand and you know understand boundaries and stuff like that. I think most people are like that, and they're just there to have fun. But those <laughs> other people really stand out. And if you're you know Xena Warrior Princess, they doubly stand out because they're you know they're on you like white on rice. <laughs> So, but you know, that's where, that's where we'll come in. We should have, I, I mean, I think, I think we should go there and not be troublemakers, but you know, stir things up there. And I hear rumors that the sub geniuses are going to be there. And I have some, uh, I have some connections with some of the, them sub geniuses and all right, I just want to put this interesting. I just want to put it out there right from the get-go. I'm not going with an agenda, all right? I'm going there for, you know, I want to, of course, I want to help promote the show and, and, and hopefully win some new, uh, you know, potential listeners and, and forum newcomers and stuff sure. like that. But my my ultimate reason for, for wanting to go is not the celebrities or the books or any because frankly I'll probably be pissed broke when I go. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> it's, it is it is literally it's to hang out with you and Eric and you know all, all the other people from the forum and the and the local community that are gonna go. I mean I, I know of, of several people, you know in the, the Georgia, Florida area that, you know, I, that are expected to, to show up and all. That's what I'm looking for. Oh, so, yeah. Well, we'll do know. that, but I'll tell and you what. I, I have a feeling I'm going to be reining you in. <laughs> really, really oh, dude, you know what I'll do? I'll just wait till you pass out. <laughs> I'll be putting you I'll be putting you to bed. I'll be watching you go into your hotel room and just say, like, ah, night. <laughs> Although all them oh, sub all, all them sub geniuses, they're all they're all older than me, so you know, they're they're actually pretty mellow. But I'm telling you, it's the 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 thing about it is, um, yeah, I'm just I I, I always have and stuff like that. I always have a video camera, and it's just always so much easier to while all that stuff is going on to document it. I always I just love document it. So we'll have a lot of fun, but it's just gonna. A lot of it will end up on videotape. Now, <laughs> I'll just make sure that each of us have enough incriminating evidence so that we're sort of in this Mexican standoff where, you know, I won't say anything <laughs> if you won't say anything. I won't release this tape if you if you don't release your tape and all that stuff. So it'll be it'll all be good. What uh, what happens at Dragon Con stays at Dragon Con. Yeah. Well, one last thing on on cons is uh, I really want to get people's opinion 
opinions of this. You know, go to the forum or, or send us an email or what. I really want an opinion on this, and, and I plan to come back to this subject possibly in like a special episode or something like that. I, I know that uh, uh, Alec Berry, um, you know, who uh, does the uh, Back to the Bins podcast with me, you know, we've we've kind of touched on this. So, you know, maybe eventually a, a show will spin out of this idea, but, you know, Comics continue to get more and more expensive. You know, they're they're pretty much at the four dollar mark. You know, Marvel's pretty much fully embraced the three ninety nine thing. You know, DC's close on their heels. Most of the the good independents are now over the the three ninety you know at the three ninety nine mark or or over it. They just continue to really climb, and I think it's at a point now where it's. I really do think it's at a make or break point for a lot of people, not just the old farts like me that remember when comics are a quarter and bitch that they're four bucks. But honestly, I think that they are to just the average comic book fan. They're they're at a ridiculous high. Most people are are pretty pissed about it from at least from what I'm hearing. And I've heard a couple people. I'm pretty sure that just Bill is one of these guys that have kind of gone on record saying, you know what, I'm thinking about bowing out. You know, when you consider that you can go to a a good con and you can buy books for, you know, a quarter or 50 cents or maybe even a dollar, and a lot of times you'll find a lot of stuff from like the last couple of years in these bins, you know, it, it makes you feel kind of foolish when you can find an entire run of something from you know a year or two ago that you paid full price for buying it brand new and now here it is in a 50 cent bin and i saw a lot of that at this con you know and it just just got me to thinking that granted i you know i'm not a con person per se i mean this is only my second one in i don't know how many years Right. But you know, now with the show and everything, I'm really going to make more of an effort to get to at least my local cons and and really you know get my face out there and, and attend and you know try to meet new people and just all that you know the the social thing with going to cons. You know, so that coupled with the the high prices, coupled with the fact that you know, I realized the other day that my my shipment of comics arrived in the mail, and. Uh, I haven't even read my books from last month yet. You know, granted that that's not anything against the books or the quality of the books or anything. It's just I've been so busy between books I'm reading for the show and my schoolwork and just everyday life and everything else. I mean, I just I literally have not had a chance to crack open one book that came last month and now my new month arrived already. So putting all that together is really making me think, you know, I'm I'm seriously considering dropping out of new books and just not collect new books anymore and go to being strictly a back issue kind of guy. You know, I mean, I'll never drop out of comics. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying oh, I'm quitting comics. I'm getting out. What I'm saying is, I, I could easily see myself going up. Oh, that's it. I, I'm not I'm not following this train any further as far as the new stuff coming out. And just you know follow things strictly as cheap ass back issues from now on. Because, I mean, you know, when you consider that you can take, you know, 15 bucks these days and not even get three comics out of that, or you can take that same $15 and walk away with, you know, the 70 books I walked away with at the con, 
you know what what's better you know what what makes better financial well that's sense, why you know that's why i never buy like the brand new video game unit when it first comes out mm-hmm. cuz i can wait 2 years for when it when right. i can pick it up at a garage sale for you know a fraction of the cost and you know what i enjoy myself just as much as if i had gotten it brand new it's just 2 years later you know cuz i'm not you know just so eager to get a hold of it. So the same point. could be said with comic books, the stuff that you pay three ninety nine with. But, you know, there's also the risk that the stuff that you might pay three ninety nine with could be the next Walking Dead and the next time you want to get it it's gonna be fifty bucks and Yeah, but then you know, I thought of that. CBRs. I did think of that. You know, that that, that and that I you know, largely I think that's what's kept me buying new books is that thought in the back of my head that, you know, if I don't continue to buy the new books, that I'm going to miss the next Walking Dead number one or the next Spider-Man 300 or whatever. But, you know, I I don't – I'm starting to think that that those things are so few and far between enough that it's it's not worth the the, the investment yeah. And, yeah worrying about plus they get repr- i mean everything these days right. is is so super reprinted that plus the fact of you know I was going to say I've learned patience, but that's not quite true. I mean, I, I'm not one of these pre- people that, well, I've, I've learned patience in, you know, in my old age. And no, I'm, I'm still very impatient. But when it comes to like waiting on expensive books and stuff, I, I have learned to be patient about that. And I've learned that, man, you know, if you just curb yourself and, and you resist the urge to, to spend ridiculous money on the hot new thing and you wait long enough – and, and scour hard enough, you can get the m- most expensive of books dirt-ass cheap if you just bide your time. I mean, you know, I don't have, you know, super ancient golden age books that are worth hundreds of dollars, but, you know, one of the, the top three modern, you know, books of the modern age that are considered to be, you know, the, the top value books is... uh you know, Incredible Hulk 181, you know, first Wolverine. I got that book. If you break it down to the per issue price of what I paid for it from the lot that I bought, I paid like 10 cents for that book. You know, I bought a uh, an amazing – or not amazing, um, Uncanny X-Men, the first – I forget what issue number it is, like 86 or whatever, the first post, you know, all new X-Men annual, whatever the hell that first – book with Wolverine in the X right. you know, and Storm and all them in the X Men. Yeah. The first regular issue of Uncanny that featured all of them in it, you know, with Count Nefaria on the cover and they're all falling out of a plane or whatever. I bought that thing for like fifty cents, you know, recently. So I mean those books are out there to be had if you just are, are patient and scour. So I don't know. I'm just I'm really I mean, I'm seriously considering this. I'm just curious. I want to know what other people think. You know, is there anybody else that's on that fence, or, or better yet, is there anybody else who's made that decision that puts, you know, will put their hand up and say, "Yep, that's me. I'm, I'm done, man. I'm going strictly to the back bins." You know, I, I want to hear from those people. I want to know what people are thinking, and I, and I want to hear from the people that say, "Yeah, you're crazy." You know, the the best stuff ever is coming out right now, and there's no way I'm I'm bowing out. So. I want to hear from all sides. I want to get some good discussion going on this. I, I think it's a, a, a topic worth discussing. Okay, this time around, we've got uh, 
Got just enough time for coverage of another issue of Superman Family. This one is Superman Family number 189. This is the May-June 1978 issue, so going way on back for this one. Cover on this one by uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Really nice cover on it. We get a nice opening splash splash page by Kurt Schaffenberger of the whole Superman family wishing Superman a happy birthday because this being uh, the 1978 issue, this would have been Superman's uh, 40th anniversary. Only 40. He's like uh, 70-something now, so that tells you how long ago this issue was. Um, got all the usual players in this one. Again, there's a Jimmy Olsen story by uh, Tom DeFalco and Kurt Schaffenberger. I didn't read it once again. Uh, I must say that the villain in this, as I flip past it, the uh, King Cougar, has got to be one of the top ten goofiest-looking supervillains I've ever seen. I mean, he's just got the most ridiculous-looking costume with a motif that has just absolutely nothing at all to do with cougars, in my eyes, anyway. He, he um, It looks like in this one that uh, Jimmy is actually going to... Uh, going to get some in the concluding panels of the story. He's, uh, he's uh, shacking up with some girl and then turning the light off. So uh, Jimmy Olsen getting some in that story. That's kind of, I don't know. It's kind of creepy. We get part two of the <laughs> Superman story from last issue called the mass murderer from Krypton. Superman returns to earth and, uh, and his fortress to find one of the aliens from last issue, uh, this alien named Rolex. I kid you not about that. Rolex is dead. <laughs> and uh, Superman pursues the other alien, and he finds him delirious and dying out in the frozen Arctic wastes that surround his fortress of solitude. In the alien's delirium, um, he spills the beans about having duped Superman into delivering a deadly plague to the planet Sunworld and that he tricked Superman into thinking that it was actually a cure that he was delivering. Superman is you know, understandably mortified, as well he should be, for being so gullible in this story. You know, He, he really comes off as just, I don't know, just goofy and, and just too willing to, to trust these people he, he's just met and everything. Anyway, he streaks off um, to try to stop uh, the people he gave the plague to for, from releasing it. But he arrives, he's too late. They've already released it. They and all their enemies are now dying from the plague, which, again, that struck me as silly. I mean, what is the point of eliminating your enemies if you're going to eliminate yourself in the process? I, I didn't quite get any sort of motivation for that. I don't know if they accidentally poisoned themselves or, or what, but it just didn't make a whole lot of sense. Anyway, Superman does some uh, quick investigating, and he discovers that the plague consists of some pollen-like bacterium. So he flies off to recover a chunk of white kryptonite that he discovered and flung off to the galactic rim in the last issue. Which I must say, you know, you'd think that that's a hell of a long journey back and forth, you know, to go all the way to the galactic rim and back to get this thing. But anyway, he goes, he flies out there and he catches it. He brings it back and he exposes uh, the people of the planet to this white kryptonite and he cures them all. Now, luckily, these people just so happen very conveniently to not rely on at all on any kind of plant life in the manufacturing of their food. Um, and I need somebody to explain to me how the hell that could possibly work. But 
that's what it says in the story. You know, otherwise Superman's cure of using the white kryptonite would have eliminated all plant life on the planet and then the population would have just starved to death anyway. So it was a simple and silly story, but it was kind of fun. You know, I like these late Silver Age stories, especially the Superman ones. You know, they're they're great reading for kids. They really were intended for kids. And, you know, there's not a lot of thought or logic apparently put behind it, but I, I get the biggest kick out of them. Um, and the Kurt Schaffenberger art is always nice to look at. I was going to say, sounds like your kind of story. Yeah, there you go. Shallow and simple, just, just like me. <laughs> so then we had a, a Lois Lane tale that, again, I didn't read. I don't care for the, the Lois and Jimmy solo stories. I, they just do nothing for me at all. Nice art on it, though. Um, then it's on to Crypto the Superdog and his new friend Ed Lacey. And they're <laughs> <laughs> really, yeah, really. It's just a, you know, it's just a, just such a random name. Crypto Ed Lacey and Ed, and Ed Lacey. Crypto and Ed Lacey. It should be a TV show, really, shouldn't it? Um, right. They are. They're still on the trail of Ed's nephew, who is a fugitive from a murder charge. And they come across a vast estate complete with greyhound kennels and a racetrack. And the owner finds Ed and Crypto and he's tres- they're trespassing on his property. And um, to try to get out of hot water, Ed challenges the guy. Uh, you know, the guy's got a championship breed greyhound at his side. And, you know, he's got Crypto. And Crypto at this point, you know, Ed, Ed and Crypto, are, you know, they're kind of – I don't know. They're kind of doing like the hobo thing. You know, they're just kind of wandering like David Banner style from adventure to adventure. So just Crypto's kind of the earth. Yeah, pretty much. You know, and Crypto's disguised as just like a common mongrel. So, you know, the guy humors Ed. They make a small wager and, and you know, the race is on. And Crypto, of course, you know, being Crypto the super dog, you know, he smokes this other dog at first. But then toward the end of it, you know – Crypto has like human thinking in these issues, which is very strange, but he feels bad that, you know, he's a super dog and, you know, this other dog's really, you know, he should win. So Crypto throws the race, you know, he just decides it just isn't right for him to beat the other dog. So even though Ed loses the wager, you know, the guy that they just met, this, this estate owner, you know, he's gracious enough. He decides to honor Ed and Crypto with a with a free dinner anyway, and he takes them to the manor house where at dinner, Ed just happens to recognize the maid as Mrs. Skinner. Now, Mrs. Skinner's son, Joe, was friends with Ed's fugitive nephew. And in fact, you know, there's there's a photograph um, that Ed finds in, in the course of the story, and the boys look pretty much exactly alike. And the estate owner tells Ed, that one of the boys in the picture that he found had just been there, but he wasn't sure which boy it was because they looked so much alike. Now, thankfully, everybody in the story agrees on this point that they all look alike, including Ed and Mrs. Skinner. Otherwise, this would be a very uncomfortable and awkward moment in the story, seeing as how Ed and Mrs. Skinner and the two boys are all black and the estate owner is a rich white guy. So that could be a very uncomfortable racist scene if if taken, you know, in a different context, but thankfully everybody agrees that the boys look alike and it's not men in any, any kind of racial thing at all. But I, I did still think like, uh oh, that's that's not politically correct. But uh, anyhow That was long before 
that term yeah. was even thought of. Oh, yes, exactly. Yeah, and it's all meant very innocently, I'm sure. But it was still, you know, just reading it in, in modern times, just it was one of those things that, went, uh-oh, that, that wouldn't fly today. They couldn't get away with that anymore. But uh, anyhow, Ed, um, he starts to put two and two together that, you know, that his nephew isn't so much on the lam that he's trying to track down Joe, who just might be the real murderer and clear his name. So the story concludes with Ed and Crypto, and, you know, they set out once again to find his nephew. Then suddenly Crypto gets zapped, and he disappears in a cloud of Kirby dots. So we're kind of left with a mystery at the end of the story, what happened to Crypto. So then we go on to uh, the Nightwing and Flamebird story. Again, by the usual team, and uh, they arrive at a museum to stop a theft of the last remaining sunstone. Now, what's really odd about the the opening panel of this, the opening uh, of the story, is they fly in. They literally fly in through these very convenient manholes that are in the ceiling of the museum. There's no comment at all made about them, so I don't. I have no idea why the hell are there two man-sized holes in the ceiling for somebody to just fly right into the museum. I, I, I didn't get it at all. And it was just one of those things that really jumped out at me like, wait, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. So anyway, the bulk of the story is taking, uh, taken up with uh, Nightwing and Flamebird. They're trying to figure out both who is trying to steal the Sunstone and why would they want to. The Sunstone... It, it basically it radiates heat and light that it absorbs from a sun, but it doesn't even function in Candor because Candor has an artificial sun. You know, it's it's a city in a bottle. So you know, what good is this thing to the mastermind behind the attempted robbery? And back in their civilian IDs of Vanzi and Akvar, it's a trap. <laughs> they uh, they receive a call from a Candorian detective. Wanting to know um, what Akvar. It's a trap! <laughs> now, Akvar is an ex convict, by the way. Uh, he wants to know what Akvar might know about this attempted theft. And it turns out that the crime that Akvar spent time for was the, th- the theft of a sunstone in a prank gone wrong back on Krypton way before Krypton ever exploded. It's a prank! And- <laughs> and I never realized it before, but Kandorian Kand- or Kryptonian justice has got to be fucking harsh, man. I mean, Akvar, I mean, this was a like a teenage prank, right? Like his friends set him up or like his friends dare him to go into the museum or whatever and steal this this stupid stone. Yep. And, Phantom you know, zone with him. It, well, the the whole thing is it was just a prank. He's supposed to go in. He's, it's almost like an initiation. He's going to go in. He's going to steal it. They're going to bring it back the next day. They end up running out on him when, when like, security chases him out of the museum. His friends fly off and strand him, and he gets screwed. He goes up the river. 20 fucking years he gets for this. 20 years wow. for the Sunstone caper. And I'm like, wow, that's that's harsh, man. So anyway, you know, the joke ultimately was on, you know – his his friends that stranded him and on his jailers because, you know, since he was in the Phantom Zone, when Krypton blew up, they all fucking died. And he got freed by Superman later. So, you know, the joke was ultimately on those guys. I, I got a kick out of that, too. 
So, you know, haha, they might have sentenced him to 20 years, but, you know, who lives and who dies, some bitch. So I like that. Oh, it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> so we get, you know, there's a great two pager recap, basically, of, of Akvar and, and kind of his origin story and all that that brings us up to speed on him. And uh, it was really cool to see, you know, for me, because I had forgotten so much of this backstory. You know, I, I evidently read this story sometime as a kid, but I had just forgotten all these details about, you know, who they actually were and their civilian identities and all that. And I thought it was really cool to get up to speed again on it. Anyway, the story finishes up with uh, Nightwing and Flamebird foiling yet another attempt to steal the Sunstone. A lot of great action and fighting and uh, a lot of hilarious moments that, you know, younger readers like I was, you know, when I read this for, for the first time, you know, probably didn't catch. So uh, the thieves, you know, are screwing around this time. Uh, they they bring a tank to burst into the museum with. And uh, Nightwing goes inside the tank to fight the bad guys inside. You know, meanwhile, the tank begins to fire and Flamebird, he, he jams this piece of debris into the barrel to clog it up. Now, Nightwing, just by pure happenstance, you know, he flies out of this thing like moments before the tank explodes. And this was not at all like a coordinated thing between the two of them. It wasn't like a coordinated attack. Neither one really knew what the other one was doing. So Flamebird could have very easily just have blown Nightwing to smithereens with this maneuver of jamming up the the tank. And, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, that I'm sure you weren't really supposed to notice or really supposed to think about, but, you know, reading this as an adult, I was like, wow, you know, that was really not the smartest plan of attack that they had. And, you know, it wasn't coordinated very well, but anyway, I would have just, you know, I really would have liked to have seen a scene, you know, a little like, holy shit, that was close, you know, moment from Nightwing, you know, where he realizes that his partner almost blew his ass up. Uh, a what the hell were you thinking moment? Yeah, he runs over and like dope slaps him or something. Like, Jesus, man, you, you almost killed me. But, you know, ultimately, no, we don't get anything like that. But uh, it, it's it's fun to think about. We're left with the heroes uh, wondering about the mysterious crime boss that's behind all this, you know, and, and that's pretty much it. The story just kind of ends a lot of times with these Nightwing and Flamebird stories, which, you know, as much as I enjoy them they all kind of suffer from the same thing as like the story finally gets rolling and then all of a sudden boom it's like the writer always runs out of runs out of time or something and they just kind of end not even really as a cliffhanger just just kind of like whoop that's it all done so then we get a uh, supergirl story now remember last time around supergirl got sentenced to the phantom zone you know for a whopping 30 days at the end of the last issue so after a whole two page recap about all that you know, we're told that she and Superman actually had hatched some sort of a half-assed plan right before she got pre- projected into the zone. And that if Superman can just stall the court for about 20 minutes, she you know, is going to try to collect some sort of evidence or something to where she can free herself. So she battles through like all these Phantom Zone villains and stuff, and she finally finds Mon-El. And it turns out that Mon-El was apparently like phantom stalking Supergirl ever since she's arrived on Earth because she uses the the mento tape thingy from the last issue on him to extract his memories and and discover that the other mento tape that we saw in the last issue um, 
the the mento tape that showed her helping Lex Luthor was actually a fraud perpetrated by an evil Kandorian scientist, this Lesla Lar. So Supergirl, you know, they set her free, and there's you know a great moment where she tells the Shyla, the the girl who got her sentenced to the Phantom Zone in the first place, that you know she'll pull her hair out if she crosses her path again. Nice. So, yeah, I, I love that. So, you know, oh, by the way, my uh, my guess was right for the last issue too. The the uh, the guy who was applying for the the job um, with Supergirl's foster father was actually Snapper Carr. So that was kind of cool. And they're setting up something to to happen with him in later issues. So Supergirl gets released after less than twenty minutes in the Phantom Zone, and all is set right with the universe. So uh, at least I, I guess so. I don't know. I still say it was a whole lot of fuss over a thirty-day sentence. You know, this story, you know, while it was really cool and I really enjoyed it, especially when I was a kid. Wouldn't this story have had a hell of a lot more impact if she was going to get 20 years like Akvar did? I, I just think it would have been, you know, it would have had a lot more. It's a load of crap. <laughs> 30 days. I mean, she could have just served out the 30 days and gotten a nice little respite from, you know. It's a slap on the wrist. <laughs> and next time around, we'll uh, we'll cover more of Superman Family going forward. Uh, hopefully next time we'll have time to do Superman Family number 190. This series will eventually wrap with Superman number 194. That's the last adventures of uh, the Kandorian Nightwing and Flamebird in the pages of Superman Family. So stay tuned for that. And there came a day a day unlike any other, when Earth's mightiest heroes and heroines found themselves united against a common threat. On that day, the Avengers were born to fight the foes no single superhero could withstand. Through the years, their roster has prospered, changing many times, but their glory has never been denied. Heed the call, then, for now, the Avengers assemble! The Avengers Assemble Podcast, available now at AvengersAssemblePodcast.Libson.com. The Saga of the Swamp Thing. All right, this is Saga of the Swamp Thing, number four, from August of 1982, cover by Tom Yates, and it depicts this thing, this demon-looking thing coming out of a burning man that's that's on the ground, and Swamp Thing's kind of having a, a standoff with him, with him, and it's just an all-white background behind them with a bunch of pictures of little kids that uh, we'll get a little more explanation about this in just a moment. Written by uh, Martin Pascal, who's done the whole series up to this point. Art um, on the interior, also by Tom Yates, with uh, Len Wine as editor. Colors by Tatiana Wood, who I just learned by by reading the uh, information stuff at the back of the issue on this, that she is, uh, was, I'm not sure if he's alive or dead anymore, she was uh, Wally Wood's wife. I did not know that before. And uh, John Costanza on the lettering. We start out the issue with the playback of a newscast from Pineboro, Arkansas, where we learn that the Pineboro 
child stalker, a brutal murderer, um, has claimed its uh, 12th victim, an eight-year-old little boy, uh, Raul uh, Hernandez. The uh, reporter interviews Raul's kid sister, Rosita, and asks what she thinks should be done uh, to the man who has been taken into police custody as a, as a suspect in the case, uh, if it indeed turns out that he is the killer. Rosita answers that, uh, that he should be put into a little white room with nothing in it uh, except the pictures of all the little boys and girls that he killed and left there to look at them for the rest of his life. And so that kind of owes into uh, the cover image uh, for this issue. We turn the page and we see a beautiful splash title page of precisely that image of the this man in a white room, um, you know, with all these pictures around him. Um, the splash, you know, also serving as the title page, has the uh, story title of "In the White Room." The playback of the news program is clicked off by Liz Tremaine, who herself was the uh, the reporter in the video. And we get a, a scene of her basically gloating about, you know, the network coverage this story is going to get, and you know, with the lo- uh, and then the the local and kind of annoyingly heavily accented hick cops of the town. You know, they're they're commenting about their concerns. I think for... they're supposed to sound like Andy Griffith. I think they picture <laughs> oh, them maybe talking that... like Andy Griffith. You know? Yeah, yeah. It just uh, it it kind of got on my nerves after yeah, a while. I agree. Uh, you know, they used to do that sort of thing sometimes in, in Western comics. I remember uh, Jonah Hex used to do that off and on, depending on who the writer was. A lot of that really heavily accented Western Southern talk, you know, that drawl that they were trying to imitate. Um, you know, but the cops, are they're basically uh, commenting about their concerns, you know, for all this coverage, uh, turning their small town into a circus and all that. And uh, there's a uh, you know the line the typical line in there about how we do things down here, Missy, and all that. And it was kind of I don't know it's kind of grating to me. But anyway, um, the cops it turned out they've actually used uh, Rosita's idea, and they've locked up their suspect in a white room just like the one that she described. And uh, Liz, you know she she heads out, and on her way out she comments about a poster. Um, for a local kind of like Mr. Rogers-esque children's show and how she wants it removed. she She's creeped out by the guy in the picture. We cut to Swamp Thing, and he's riding into town on the back of a watermelon truck. I kid you not. That's that's really where how he's getting to town. He's, uh, he's thinking about uh, Casey, and he suddenly gets this like blinding pain in his head and uh, it causes him to uh, fall off the tr- off the truck when the truck jostles down the road, and he falls and he's knocked unconscious beside uh, the road. We cut to Casey, and she's watching TV for the very first time at a, a uh, at a child center, an abandoned child center, and she watches it for a bit, and she's pretty imp- unimpressed by what she sees, um, which actually turns out it's the very same children's show that Liz was just bitching about a minute ago. So Cassie, or Casey, rather, she returns to uh, her ward, you know, the the area where she, where her bed is and everything, and she uses her whatever mind power she has, and she makes the iron bars on the window, you know, snap and pull apart and everything. And uh, it allows her to escape. 
we then go to the white room holding cell where the prisoner is basically having an, uh, an argument with himself. And we learn that this guy uh, is the actual killer and that he's also Uncle Barney, the host of the kids show. You know, the kids show that we saw in the poster and that uh, Casey was watching on TV. Uh, he's been possessed by something that, you know, now decides it's going to cut him loose in favor of a new dwelling place. So when it departs from his body, it causes Uncle Barney to spontaneously combust and he's reduced to just like a little charred outline on the floor. Outside in the uh, in the courthouse proper, the press has been gathered for a special session. And then suddenly the sheriff comes out and announces that, uh, you know, they've got to postpone due to an unforeseen development with the prisoner. So Liz, Liz decides that uh, she's going to leave. She's going to go pitch her show to the local TV station because, you know, now with uh, this Uncle Barney situation, they're going to have an opening in their programming slots. So she's going there and her assistant, Paul, uh, he's going to go and do some more background research on the little mute girl that they found who, you know, of course, that's Casey. But unseen by Liz, Paul is possessed by whatever was inside Uncle Barney just a few moments ago. And as they leave the courthouse, um, you know, this child stalking entity is now inside a guy who's headed who's headed to a children's shelter. So pretty quickly, uh, possessed Paul here, he catches up with uh, Casey. You know, she's escaped. She's on the lam. How exactly he catches up to her, I don't, I didn't quite get from the story. He just seems to kind of happen upon her, I guess. And, uh, you know, he, he corners her and he starts to babble about how he knows, you know, what she is and how they really aren't so very different and stuff like that. When uh, Swamp Thing is actually like psychically pulled to Casey's side and just in time to try to stop possessed Paul from abducting her. Swamp Thing uh, jumps onto Paul's car. He gets stabbed and he falls off when possessed Paul hits the brakes on the car. So uh, the thing inside Paul, you know, it then goes into a whole thing, a, a speech that's to me, it was very reminiscent of like Red Jack's speech from uh, yep. the Star Trek episode, Wolf in the Fold, you know, about how, how it's existed since the dawn of time and all that, you know, and it feeds on the young of, of mankind. And, you know, it reveals that it's actually really a demon that came to possess the the kind of pathetic and powerless man um, that Uncle Barney was. And, uh, you know, when Uncle Barney began to play around with uh, mysticism, magic, and conjuring, the conjuring rather, the uh, demon uh, basically uh, was conjured and, and fulfilled Uncle Barney's power fantasies and in exchange used him as a host to feed on children. So, you know, when he's done with his little tail, he uh, possessed Paul kicks Swamp Thing off of a sus suspension bridge and uh, down to the river below it. We uh, then cut to a long, weird, just kind of annoying speech by Liz to the uh, TV station manager. You know, it's basically a rant about, you know, kids today and that sort of thing and how her program would be just be so much better for kids to watch than, you know, typical children's programming 
And then we go back to Swamp Thing, and uh, he's again being pulled by Casey's powers to a slaughterhouse. And he dives in through a window, and he tries to stop Possessed Paul from dicing uh, Casey up with a meat cleaver, but finds himself pretty much he's outmatched and overpowered by uh, Possessed Paul. And uh, Possessed Paul sticks Swamp Thing up on a meat hook. So then he's about to take the cleaver to uh, to Casey's neck when Swamp Thing offers himself to the demon in her place, uh, you know, in exchange for uh, for Casey's life. The demon, you know, he's lured by the power inherent in Swamp Thing's body and everything, and he accepts the deal. And as he leaves Paul's body, Swamp Thing kicks Paul backwards into a lever that controls the overhead conveyor that the meat hook is attached to. So the demon, you know, now it goes inside Swamp Thing, and it gets taken on a ride along the conveyor to the meat storage freezer where it's destroyed by the cold. The story wraps up with uh, Paul, you know, who, you know, of course, remembers nothing of any of this. He uh, he gets reunited with the sheriff and with uh, Liz, Kate. Uh, Casey escapes again, and Swamp Thing is loaded into an ambulance to be taken uh, to a place run by the conglomerate that Liz works for, which just so happens to be Sunderland Corporation. We saw them uh, earlier in the series already trying to uh, dissect Swamp Thing. So the very last thing we see in this story is little Rosita Hernandez from the beginning of the story. You know, her brother was killed. She was the one that was interviewed. She's watching the new Uncle Barney replacement program called Aunt Polly when there's a knock at the door. And Rosita, you know, she doesn't even look away from the TV or anything. She just yells out to whoever it is, come on in. It's open. And that's pretty much where the story ends. And there was also an, a kind of an odd little dedication at the end of the story. Um, let's see if I can flip to it right quick here. To the people of Atlanta. Yeah, that was it. To the good people of Atlanta that they may put the horror behind them but not forget. And I did some research on this today as much as I was able. I'm not entirely sure, but I think the that this may – yeah, Wayne, exactly. Wayne, Wayne Williams. Oh, okay. You know more about this than I yeah, do. Yeah, I remember it. it. He was. He's actually like. I don't know if he's the first, but he's a very rare, rare serial killer, and he was black. And oh. um, and um, that was that was one of the things. It was a lot of little black kids that were going missing. Yeah, what I've got here is it was uh, the Atlanta child murders were a series of murders committed in Atlanta, Georgia from the summer of 1979 until the spring of 1981. It said over a two-year period, a minimum of 29 black children, teens, and adults were killed. So, yeah, I guess that must be what uh, what this is referring to. And for the longest time, I think they... They they had a profile. Their their profile of him was not as a black man. It was a white man because just generally statistically, most serial killers are white and male. And they caught him. They they you know they knew he was dumping the bodies in the river, and they finally caught him. Um, you know they saw him by a bridge, and then there was a splash in the water, and the police questioned him, and then they found a body within the next couple of days and picked him up. 
Hmm. And uh, and he was he was a very you know mild man you know the 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 standard mild mannered. Uh, his neighbors said, "Oh, he was a nice guy," you know that sort of thing. <laughs> but yeah, it was except right for up- that killing kids thing, he was a great guy. So so this comic had a lot more resonance because it was happening. You know, it happened right on the heels of that. That was a big news. Big news right. story, and uh, I my biggest comment on this is um, Pascal is a good writer, but he is wordy. Oh, oh yes. my god, every page is just dense with text, and I think this story could have been well better served to have been two issues, and I think they should have started it out before you knew it was. Uh, you know the 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 kitty show host. You should have had a mystery. You know some. You know, and then maybe at the end of the first issue they catch him. You know, and you think, okay, they've got him. And then in the second issue, the whole demon thing is revealed. Instead of doing it all sort of in flashback, and you know, technically, like at the beginning of this, he's already in custody, right? And you know, and then there's all like sort of weird. References to him with Liz going, take this poster down. This is annoying, and he's really the killer. You know, it's just, it's all too, com- it's all sort of too condensed down into this into the story. Not not right. that, not that it's bad. It's still it's still good, but it could have. I think it could have fit in two two issues, and it would have been. Uh, it, 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 they they, they might have flushed it out. You know, made the first part maybe like sort of a more of a mystery story. And then the second part, the supernatural intrigue with Casey. And I think it was a pretty big risk for Swamp Thing to take to also, you know, to let the demon possess his body and potentially cause so much damage just because when Possessed Paul was touching him, he's like, oh, his hands are really hot. This thing must thrive on heat so the cold will kill it. Well, Well, you know, that's... I Quite guess he leap. Didn't, yeah, he didn't have too many options at that point to tell you know honestly, but still it was it was still kind of a, a leap of faith. Leaves him in a bad place, so he's getting carted off to Sunderland, which is mm-hmm. what what he, what really you would think he would not want to do since they want to vivisect him. Well, that was uh, I only really had a couple things on this, but uh, yeah, that was one of my things. Well, I want to go back to the Uncle Barney thing for just a moment, which was, uh, you know, I I don't want to sound at all big headed about this because I'm not a mystery guy. I mean, when I watch a mystery movie, a a whodunit, I never pick the right person. Almost never, unless it's like a a, like a shitty story or, or a bad movie where they just didn't make enough of a mystery about it. That's my problem with this issue. Now, granted, I read this before, but shit, it was, you know what? This is 1982, so it was 27 years ago. Now, unless it was just some sort of like trace memory thing, whatever you call it, the part right on page, what is it, page three, where where she points to the poster and and makes the comment about, you know, how she doesn't like this guy or whatever, right off the bat, I said, that's the guy. That's the guy that did it right there. That's that's the murderer. Yeah, yeah. Why waste? Why waste that in in such a densely packed comic? Why waste that frame? Right on, on a character that's not going to figure into the story. Exactly. Know? Yeah. Maybe maybe it's just me being the, the jaded comic book reader. That's. But it did when she did that. When she points her thumb at that, said no. By this way, t- you know, take this poster down. Right off the bat, it said, oh, that that's the guy who did it." And it just kind of 
brought the story down a little that's, bit, I that's thought. That's why I think if it was two issues, they could have had the first, most of the first issue, you know, maybe figured him into the story, but had it been at the end, that would have been the twist, is it's, the killer is actually, you know, the, the, the um, host of the kiddie show who's telling p- kids to give strangers the benefit of a doubt, you know? Right. And, th- and then after that, and I think it's a, l- a little bit of a cop out also that um, that f- with the with the whole demon inside of him, they could have maybe even gotten away with it with with this guy not just being a really sick and twisted evil person, you right? Know? And uh, and it's 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 a little bit of a cop out to say ah oh, that's why he kills children because he has a demon in him rather than. You know that there actually are real people who can kill children without being possessed by some sort of satanic being. You know they they just do right. it because they're they're sick, twisted individuals. Right. But, but it's a swamp thing. It's a supernatural comic. There's so there's uh, and, and and I think coming if I recall right, and I haven't read these in years, but I think there's quite a bit more demon possession coming in the next yeah few issues of. Uh, you know, in the next coming dozen issues of Swamp Thing or so, so you know, I mean, you got to have so it's 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 sort of you got to have a monster for him to fight. So I'm not gonna fault him too much for for the the demon cop out, but uh, yeah, I don't know that it was specifically demons, but I, I know that something uh, of a satanic bent is coming because that's what eventually. Well, put me off the book because I, you know, I was into it in these early issues, and then right around I think it was like thirteen or thereabouts, I dropped the book like a bad habit, you know, for reasons I'll get into when, when we, we get, get closer there. to those issues. Yeah, and so I missed those those crucial and very expensive early Alan Moore issues. You know, I didn't get back on the book until you know he was well established on Swamp Thing and I was hearing all the buzz, you know, like everybody else. So it really sucks that I could have been there right, you know, right at the get go. And I, and I wasn't because I, I, I gave with up it, on baby. it a little bit early. I stuck with it. <sighs> Although I'll tell you, it was tough because it was, it was a little before Alan Moore, just before Alan Moore took over, it was getting really convoluted and just, yeah, and I don't. We'll, we'll get oh, into it, it all, all the all the players that are involved in that time period have all been introduced and are sort of in play now. But it just gets it just get it gets kind of silly after a while too. Yeah, see, it wasn't any of that that put it put me off. It it, it was really it, it was it was that it got. Um, I I don't know how else to put it. it just it got too satanic and uh like i said i'll get i'll get more into that later because that you know that was just that was the thing that drove me off the book really was was it got too much into the the whole uh i ain't scared of no ghosts <laughs> oh the, well the other thing i wanted to comment on as far as the swamp thing portion of the of the thing was uh you know now granted we eventually see in in Swamp Thing, and we'd seen it prior, you know, with with the original series where Batman showed up, and then uh, Swamp Thing was in uh, an issue of uh, of uh, DC Comics Presents with Superman and all that. So, granted, Swamp Thing does live in the same world where you've got you know aliens and you know super powered people flying around and all that. But at the same rate, you know, this last page where they've actually got him on a gurney and they're putting him into an ambulance, these people just don't seem terribly 
wowed or anything that they've actually captured like like the comic book equivalent of Bigfoot. You know what I mean? Up to this point, he was just like another urban legend. Now they actually have the legendary Swamp Man, but they don't seem like wowed by it. You know what I mean? It's just like, oh, yeah, Swamp Guy. Okay, well, put him in the ambulance. You know, it's just there's no reaction panel. There's yeah, no right. panel where they're like, holy he's, shit. He's headed for a crate in the same warehouse where they got the Ark of the Covenant, you know, basically. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. Well, it's worth mentioning, but I'm not going to go into it, but it is worth mentioning that there was a backup feature in this book that was uh, The Phantom Stranger by uh, Mike W. Barr with uh, art by uh, Tony Dzniga. Now, I, I read it because I'll read anything that uh, Tony Dzniga draws. He's just a fantastic artist. I've always been a fan. It was okay, and it was like uh, it was actually a cliffhanger story, which I don't think we'd seen. A, a, no, this a, was the first one, and with yeah. sort of a, a bad guy in it that's familiar to the Phantom Stranger. I can't remember what his name is, but it's some yeah, sort of Zantanar, it's some some satanic looking guy he actually looked uh, you know i was expecting him to go when the, it was i knew it must be you and the guy's got horns and everything you know satan but it's uh tanarak tanarak yeah you know what he actually looks a lot like uh oh damn it who's the guy from i'll never be able to remember the guy's name the guy who was the leader in night force and i cannot for the life yeah, of me I have remember no idea all I, I can no think idea. of is Baron Bedlam, and I know that name's not right, or at least I don't think that name is right. But anyway, whoever the leader of Night Force was, that's who this guy actually looks a lot like, but it, I, I'm pretty sure it's not supposed to be the same guy. But anyway, it ends on a cliffhanger. It just wasn't, I don't know, it wasn't very good, but yeah. love the art. Yeah. Love the art. But uh, yeah, other than that, I just didn't think much of the story. And uh, the Phantom Stranger, I, I think he's a fantastic character when he'll pop up like in somebody else's book, but... Just never one of those characters I thought was able to carry his own story, you know? Just, yep. I don't know. Didn't do it for me somehow. But anyway, you know, I, I remember not really caring for this story much as a kid. You know, the Swamp Thing story, you know, just probably because it had to do with, with the demon and all that. But uh, I actually kind of liked it the second time around. You know, for all it's... It's kind of edgy for its time. Oh, yeah. It's kinda, yeah, I it's think so, too. It's kind of dark and violent for even for Swamp Thing. And dealing with a very touchy subject. Yeah, but the only part of the whole thing that 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 I didn't like was uh, Liz's whole speech. That one whole page, she just kind of goes off to it the was, station manager, and it was it like was all a, this. It was a writing artifice to get that last, so that last panel made sense because she was talking about how everybody's treat, teaching kids to trust other people and it's not it's a dark world out there and there's dark things so you can't have kids be living in this fantasy world so then you sort of so that sort of was a foreshadowing and a hammering home of the the little girl you know answering the right and telling the person to come right in you know it was sort of an underscore of what liz said liz is liz is portrayed as being very annoying self-serving and shallow at this point in the the story she's a obnoxious newswoman she's not like a lois lane perky maybe a little annoying and nosy but liz is like a a career you know she's like oh really this guy's off the air let let me get my show and you know just a opportunist you know using a serial killer as an opportunist to sell her news show 
as a children's show just because that <laughs> spot's open because the guy's been slaughtering children. So, yeah, she's a little obnoxious at this point. So maybe the, that's meant to be to give her some character growth as the story goes on, you know. But <laughs> all in all, I mean, I've, I sort of criticized it a lot, but it's still a good I, – I, I remember liking it when it came out. I remember thinking, wow, this is a pretty uh, kind of daring topic to yeah. cover and, you know – and they they soft pedaled it a little bit, but that's just sort of maybe thinking of it also in today's standards. If this comic maybe was more popular or or something like that, you know, it might have like caused some controversy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember it being attention. pretty pretty heavy for its time. Yeah. You know, when when you know your other comic books were you know somebody just getting punched in the head or whatever right. you know here here this one was a, a, ch- a serial killer of children yeah sort of like fritz lang's m with peter lorry <laughs> he would whistle in the hall of the mountain king as he stalked the children excellent on that note i think we should uh Go and come back with the slaughter of everybody in the entire world with The Walking Dead. <laughs> now we're cooking with gas. Stop talking about comic books or I'll kill you. I don't care if the Hulk could defeat the man of steel. I'm gonna rearrange your face. Number eight of The Walking Dead, Robert by uh, Robert Kirkman and drawn by Charlie Adler. And uh, this one has a great stark cover of a lone vulture-like bird flying overhead. As as yeah, maybe it's Rick or you know, a lone figure is walking off away from us with a rifle slung over his shoulder and a blanket over his head, and you see a uh, the corpse of a 
of a zombie sort of frozen into the ground. It's great. It's all in like blues and whites. The only real color is sort of on the blanket. Well, anyway, in the, in this uh, episode, uh, if you remember from last time, the whole crew had decided um, that they were going to move on. They'd been sort of hovering outside of Atlanta, but now they decided it's it would be safer for them to move on and try to find a better place because it looks like it might be a long haul. So, at the beginning of this, we find uh, Rick and Lori, and they're talking, and they decide that they're going to have the baby, and they go and uh, tell the the group that, that that's a decision that they made. And uh, afterwards, you know, uh, Alan voices some concerns about them having a child and, you know, medical concerns and 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 how safe it would be and uh later on dale is talking to rick and he sort of brings up the point that the timing of all this pregnancy sort of points more towards it being shane's and rick and you know rick understandably gets kind of pissed off but he you know he also admits you know that the thoughts crossed his mind too but that he loves and trusts his wife and what is he going to do you know shane's dead he loves his wife. If 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 he allows his mind to keep going over it and over it, he's just going to go insane. It's not going to do any good. Um, meanwhile, it's getting cold and it's starting to snow a little bit. So uh, the group starts traveling in uh, Dale's RV, and uh, you know, on the road they uh, stop to siphon some gas from a car by the side of the road and. Uh, they literally stumble onto a corpse that's frozen into the ground. And, uh, you know, they're examining it. And uh, as they get their head close to it, you know, it sort of makes a noise. And they realize, oh, you know, hey, um, winter's sort of taking the piss and vinegar out of these things. So uh, later they're driving and uh, they discover what looks like a, kind of a bonanza. They almost miss it, but they see a... A gated community that's uh, literally a gated community. It's it's houses with a big, tall gate with iron spikes at the top of it all around it. So uh, they decide they're going to cautiously sort of investigate this. So upon a sort of cursory look around the place, uh, you know, it, it seems that it's, it's abandoned completely. It seems empty. It's kind of smashed up a little bit. Some of the windows are broken in the houses and it looks like people left hurriedly or maybe there was some looting and some battling with the reanimated corpses but uh you know they don't see any any um zombies around and they decide to check out a house and maybe if they get find a house and it seems clear that they'll all spend the night there because they're sick of all being huddled in in the rv so uh they go into a house and they're they're sort of you know, going, doing room to room, and uh, Rick opens the basement door, and he's met by these two hulking zombies, and there's a bit of a struggle, and uh, he and Tyrese pretty much off the zombies, and uh, they find another one sort of sitting in the basement, and kill, kill that one too, and uh, so later they're disposing, taking the bodies out, outside to dispose of them, and, uh, you know, Rick's sort of chatting with Tyrese, and we find out that Tyrese was a football player in the NFL, and uh, retired and uh, was basically making his money as a used car salesman. I don't know if he was a used car salesman or just a car salesman. But, uh, you know, when when all this happened. And uh, 
So things sort of look good in the house. Uh, there's food in the pantry, and uh, you know everybody divvies up all the sleeping arrangements. Everybody's really happy not to be sleeping in the stinky, cramped um, uh, RV where everybody's having nightmares and just the general stink of people. So uh, Rick and Rick and Lori are like laying in bed, and they're starting to make plans for how they're going to deal with the new baby and. And, uh, the, you know, the reality of that when, uh, Donna walks in and she's got some blankets, a, a big pile of blankets that she's given to everybody. So she gives them some extra blankets and she's walking out and, uh, she sees Tyrese. So she goes over to him and sort of, you know, says, Hey, you know, I'm really glad you're part of our group now. Here's a couple blankets. And, uh, then goes, uh, into Dale and Andrea's room, walks in on them having sex and sort of you know, startled and, and quickly, quickly turns around and closes the door. And if you remember in the last, a couple issues ago, she was sort of tut-tutting over their, their age difference, but, uh, she sort of smiles. And, uh, later on she's sitting with Alan and she says, you know, I don't approve, but she's kind of happy to see people actually acting human and doing, you know, human things and, and, uh, so he's, he kind of makes a, a comment of the ice princesses melting, which leads us to cut to the outside of, uh, the gated community where there's a sign and, and, uh, there's, that's covered with snow. And as the snow melts off it, we see, uh, the sign says, all dead, do not enter. And that's the end of this issue. <laughs> great yeah. issue it is a great issue this uh this is my favorite one of the early issues of this book and uh, i remember there being a forum thread i can't remember where it was it may it may have been on the main cgs forum i can't remember but there was a thread a while back about you know what are what are some of your favorite like cliffhanger endings or your favorite like holy shit moments or that that sort of thing and uh and I cited this one. I, I think this is one of the great like oh shit endings in comics. You know, when you realize yes. that they're spending the night, you know, in, in a place that in, in, at in least in my set, mind when I just like the last place they want to be. Yeah, they've exactly. just walked you know, into the last place they've wanted to be and plopped right down and went to sleep. Yeah. I mean, except for the ones that they see when they came in. I mean, we never see any zombies or anything, so there, there's this sense of, you know, safety and complacency. Right. And granted, all, all the sign says is all dead, do not enter. But, my, you know, your mind just conjures this this thought of, you know, they're in the thick of it. You know, they're... Right. You know they're surrounded and don't even know it. And you know, really, that, yeah, the way that and it's just very artfully done. The way that the the snow and the sound effect of it going plop 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 off the sign. It's very cinematic. You can see and hear that snow falling off. Right. And and that's what gives you the sense of danger. The, there's the one one element that really is like sort of pointing towards how this can be dangerous is we've just found out that like when it's cold it slows them down but you know it's only been it's not like fully winter now so you know 
So basically, you know, it's sort of hinting that, you know, well, maybe they're not seeing some zombies because they're slower, you know, or they're they're sort of out of commission in the cold weather. But who knows? It might be 70 degrees tomorrow, you know. Right. Yeah, and, this is presumably really, this is still Georgia after all. You yeah, know, where... and they only looked at one house too. They only went in there and sort of like just sort of gave it a glance around, didn't see anybody wander, you know, didn't see anybody wandering around and then went into one house. But yeah, <laughs> the foreshadowing is just the sense of dread is is awesome. Now going all the way back to the to the front cover. Uh-huh. Something that occurred to me that, you know, of course it didn't occur to me reading this the first time because you know, I, I hadn't read it yet, so right. I didn't know what happens within. But now knowing, you know, what happens within this particular issue, I wonder if we were supposed to think after the, the cliffhanger with the last issue and all that, that possibly this corpse on the cover was Rick's wife. You know, that, that somehow something happened to her or would happen to her in, in this issue, you know, with the revelation at the last issue about her being pregnant and what. Because this looks to me like a female zombie. So I, she I wonder does if... look female, but she's also very decomposed. So if it was his wife, you know, she's been dead for a while. Yeah, But she has true. a little bit of blood. There's sort of, you can't really tell, but it, it's sort of hinted that maybe he just shot her in the head or there's a yeah. little bit of blood on the zombie's you know, sort of where its throat is underneath the, its clothing. It's a very strange shot. You know, it's very, very moody. Very this, this, this comic is just so well written. You know, he, he, he conveys his information and uh, that and stuff that's going to mean something so effortlessly that it just goes by the first time. You know. Right, and then then as you, you know, progress through it, and you know, I've this is so, sort of, um, you know, re- this this reading for the show is my third time through all these Walking Dead comics, so you know, I'm picking up a lot of stuff that's gonna mean something, or you know, that's setting up a rule of thumb that's gonna come into play later on, and. Uh, he really thought this stuff out really well mm-hmm. and uh, executes it really well to make it feel realistic, move along, and uh, still be able to keep the scares and the shocks coming without going over the top. Just masterful. Masterful! We've just been drooling over Robert Kirkman for... Eight eight months now, just like puckering up every, you know, putting on our chapstick. Now let me ask you, on uh, on, I believe it's page 14, the big splash page of Rick opening up the basement door and the two zombies come out at him. Now I'm – I've seen it, of course, but I'm barely familiar with the original version of Night of the Living Dead. I I just never really cared for that one very much. But the remade version of Night of the Living Dead, I know that it featured a zombie that looks almost just like the big, fat, ball-headed guy 
in uh, this picture. Do you think that's an homage, possibly, to that scene? Because be. the scene is very similar. Well, the cellar figured very strongly into the original Night of Living Dead. Right. You know, the cellar was sort of the cellar was one of the big symbolic and just story elements of. You know, the people in the cellar, should we be in the cellar, the cellar door, opening the cellar door? And so, anytime in a zombie movie, when you're going into the cellar, it's bringing you to Night of the Living Dead. And, uh, you know, I always, I pictured this zombie as being a really fat guy who's decomposing and starting to bloat up. So Right. And the way he's drawn, you get the feeling that, like... If you punched him in the face, his face would just, like, explode, you know, or his belly. If you punched him in the belly, your hand would just go gloop right in, like, jelly. That's disgusting. Yeah, it is disgusting. That's why I love this this comic. It conveys that really well. But, yeah, the, the more I look at that picture, just the way he looks and the way he's drawn, I, I really wonder if that's... Uh... If that's supposed to be, you know, an intentional homage to that scene in Night of the Living Dead, because it, it, it happens very similarly to how that how it happens in that movie, how it, how it plays out in the movie, yeah, yeah. So I, I like that. I like whenever there's little homages like that. I think that's pretty cool. But yeah, just just a fantastic. I really really enjoyed this issue, and uh, and of course I like. I definitely like where it goes from here too. Yeah. Yeah. That- you know, the, I think this book really one one of the one of the you know he he uses several different formulas you know for th- that he kind of rotates from time to time and one of the 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 formulas that he keeps rotating that you know of course got used a lot in uh, in Dawn of the Dead was setting you up a false sense of security. Yes. That, okay, now we're going to be all right for a while. We're you settling know? into a routine. Right. And every yeah. time the characters settle in, that's when shit happens. And that that's what I really like about this. And, and what's great about it is he doesn't even let you leave the issue with that sense of security. You know, he, he could have very easily closed this issue out with that, you know, that last panel of, of Alan and Donna just kind of happily looking out the window, but he throws in that last page with the, you know, with the sign, you know, the snow melting off the sign. And it's just the perfect way, you know, it just tells you the reader, nope, everything's not cool. Everything's not all dory and they're not going to live happily ever after. They are screwed. Uh, and I love it, you know, because that he he keeps doing that so masterfully that you know even after all the things we've seen and all the things we will see, we continue to get scenarios where you know the survivors will set themselves up, and you'll think, okay, they're going to be all right for you know a, a good long while, and then it all happens again. I love it. I love little, it. Little by little, they they keep losing. Like those things that that are, that just that are of the society that once was, you know, anything that that little by little they're being denied every little part of being human that was in in the old way society was, you know, having a place to live, you know, having security, 
ha, you know, having a family, having all that stuff, it, it, it keeps, you know, the way, the way the world has become keeps proving that you can't have that, that the, the things that make us human in this world just sort of seem to be like stolen moments here and there is about all they're allowed to get. You know, right? And if they do get some some time where they think, you know, ah, we're sleeping in the bed, and maybe we can, you know, just sort of bunk out here. Yeah, it's 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 the, you know, maybe they'll get enough of it just to make it all the worse when they find out that you know the world says, oh no, no, you're not living in that world anymore. You know, <laughs> hu- hum- humanity isn't like that anymore. And, uh, yeah, and, uh, I can't wait till how many, however many years in the future when we get to where we are, what were the ones that are coming out now in the late fifties, cause, oh my God, <laughs> the places these characters have gone mm-hmm. <laughs> since, since they were in here, they're like babes in the woods here. When I read it, it's like, wow, you know, they've, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. I can't wait to see where this series goes, like, a year from now, two, or, or even, you know, like, three years from now. Can you imagine how messed up <laughs> things will, you know, things, I don't think things in general will be any more messed up three years from now, and, like, three years of this comic would be, what, probably another year in their world? So it would be, so it's about, the comic's been running about three years now, right? Something like that? Mm, A little more than three or four years? This one is dated 2004, so no, no, it's, because remember they had the five-year thing was on the the coverage recently. You're right. So yeah, it's it's been around five years now. (laughs) And only really a year has gone by in their time in those five years of issues so that's why I envy my friend Mike who gets to read them all just sort of <laughs> dum 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 he doesn't have to wait and wait and wait and wait although there's I'll something t- to be said for that too well I tell you why I'm tempted just because we are so far back I mean we're we're at number eight and right now they're at what like 63 or something, something like, like that. that yeah or 57 I, I mean I or... am very tempted to start doing you know like some some jam episodes and really you know like double and triple up on these and and really move closer to the modern stuff but i i don't know i mean what i'm curious what you think about that i'm curious what the what the listeners think about that i mean do they like where we are in this and and really giving the issue by issue breakdown or would they like us to get a little more modern with with where we're at so i'm curious Maybe we can set something up in the future where we get, if we get industrious or ambitious, where we can <laughs> do some sort of like stick cam where we will do a special separate episode. Because I don't know, I don't know. Are there is there anybody who's just sort of following us along, like on our Star Trek shows, you know, with the TV episodes where they watch a TV show, or other people like reading, you know, these issues along with us. You know that if we did like a stick cam where we went into the future, they'd have to either avoid it or wouldn't want to see it because we'd be spoiling anything. So I don't right. know. I I wonder. You know, I wonder who's. I wonder how the people who listen to the show. I 
I'd really like to get some feedback to see if people are listening to the show just because they like hearing about comics or because they want to hear about The Walking Dead because they're Walking Dead fans or because they're Swamp Thing fans. I mean, The Walking Dead was sort of in the show before Swamp Thing was. Because it's the only one the warden lets them listen to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or if they're they're just here just because they like our podcast and, you know, they listen to Star Trek and Star Wars and then this one's next. So I'd I'd be curious. So if if you feel if you feel industrious, if you feel real industrious, go you know to the comics forums, the CGS forums, and sign up for that. And you know, and directly talk to us in there because we're always in there bumping around and talking to people. Oh but, yes. Uh, or you could you know email us at two true freaks at. G- gmail.com is it two true freaks dot gmail dot com or it's two true freaks at, at gmail dot com at, at gmail dot yes com. I knew that <laughs> I'm such a pro <laughs> such a fucking <laughs> pro um, you are you know yeah tell us what tell us what you think we're curious not enough of you I mean there's obviously people listening but we don't get as many letters as there are listeners yeah, we don't get near enough feedback for all the listeners that we have, so come on. Step up. What the hell? I know you got opinions. Oh, yes. You got it. Th- we want to hear them. Maybe they're the kind of listeners that just hate hate us, but they, you know, they're addicted to it because they like to get wound up listening to us, so but they would never write us because they don't even want to speak to us. They probably couldn't <laughs> even look us in the eye if they saw us in public. They'd probably spit on us. That's probably what's going on, man. I know it. Oh, don't tell me Bastards. that. I prefer to think they all love us. And they're intimi- I want to. I want to live in that happy fantasy. Ah, oh, you know what? That's it. They're, they're intimidated by our intelligence and wit. And <laughs> that, that they're afraid if they that they won't be worthy. How yeah. can you even say that with a straight face without cracking up? How do you know I have a straight face? <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's about all I've got for this time around. Yeah, me too. Uh, I do want to say that uh, there are some other shows out there that uh, that I think that are uh, on par with Two True Freaks that I think oh, that really? you should check out. Yeah, well, you know, more or less, kind of, sort of, maybe, not really. But, uh, you know, some, some excellent <laughs> shows regardless that, that I think, uh, you know, if we're just not putting out enough content to fill your week, here's some other stuff that you could give a listen to that I think that you would enjoy. There's uh, Teenage Wasteland put out by uh, Alec Berry. That's uh, always a lot of fun. Alternate Reality. Now, I just got hooked on this show recently. and That's uh, a fun man, show. I, I like that show, too. Fun. I think they're a lot like us. I think that's why I like, like that show so much is that uh, John and Charlie, I, I think they yeah, just you know, do. They, they're like us, but I hate the sound of my own voice, so I don't have to hear it on their show. <laughs> this is true. You've got uh, Inside the Magic, which, you know, somewhat of an acquired taste. If, if Disney is not really your thing, then I don't know what you'll get out of it, but uh, I got to plug it because I love it. It's one of my absolutely favorite podcasts, so give Inside the Magic a try. Um, just always a lot of fun. Super Future Friends, which uh, we we need to get back in contact with them. I, I still listen to their show, still enjoy it. We were supposed to do some sort of a team-up crossover thing a while back that uh, nothing ever really became of it, but uh, 
uh, I'll follow up on that. But yeah, Super Future Friends, just a lot of fun covering uh, you know the classic golden age of uh, the Legion of Superheroes in chronological order. That's a great show. And then, of course, Will Sanchez's Avengers Assemble, which finally uh, yes. Will got off his ass and put a new episode out. So uh, he's got a brand new episode out there. Give that a listen. Tell him that uh, Scott at Two True Freaks said uh, that he finally did get off his ass. So... I'm just giving him a hard time because I've been after him for a while now to get another episode out. So that's great. I'm glad he. Uh, I'm glad he's still around. I was kind of fearing that maybe he had pod faded there for a while. Ooh, nice and, use uh, of lingo. Yeah, isn't it though? Pod faded. It's one of those one of those catchy new agey young people <laughs> terms. And uh, oh, and uh, lastly, Radical, uh, dude. buy back issue magazine. I don't care if you read it. But buy it, damn it. It's a good magazine. It's excellent. Check it out. It's full of all kinds of comic-y goodness. So uh, no excuse for you. Buy it. And that's about it, man. All right. We will see you next week where we will have, oh, an awesome episode. You're going to love it. Awesome. Don't spoil it. It's just awesome. You got to listen to it. Yep. We've... We've put all of our blood, sweat, and tears in it, so our bodies are completely desiccated and shriveled. <laughs> We've uh, outdone ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so come back come back next week and come back next month and we'll have more comics, more Swamp Thing, more Superman, more... Super dogs. You're just going on and on. End the damn show already. All right, bye. Bye. See ya. (laughs) I know when to shut up when it's time to shut up. Nobody's (laughs) got to tell me when to shut up. I know when I'm talking too much. Visit our website at 2TrueFreaks.Libson.com where you can download all of our episodes and find our forum to openly and freely discuss topics from this and all other episodes with us and your fellow listeners. 2TrueFreaks.Libson.com is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S dot Libson, which is L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. You can email us directly at 2TrueFreaks at gmail.com. And thanks for listening to the 2TrueFreaks podcast. The 2TrueFreaks now have a phone line where you can call and leave a completely inappropriate message. Maybe we'll even use it on the show. That number is 1-585-COP-LURE. That's 1-585-267-5873. If you enjoyed this show, why not review us in iTunes? And if you didn't enjoy this show, why not review us in iTunes? Two True Freaks is a very proud member of the League of Comic Book Podcasts. For more information, visit comicbooknoise.com slash league. Two True Freaks has been brought to you today by DeManzo Corps of Milan, Italy, and by the letters F and U. But wait, there's more! Two True Freaks is very proud to present a sensational new group, direct from Boston and performing their new song, Here's Hatch.
You can check Hatch out at myspace.com slash one hatch band. That's myspace.com slash the number one H A T C H B A N D, where you can learn more about the band, sample more of their great music, and even buy their new CD. And tell them Two True Freaks sent you. <laughs> 